From the Vaults, audio from Edmonton's past. This recording consists of an interview of Lawrence Buck Oliver Olson conducted by John McIsaac on December 11, 1980. This material was recorded on a 5-inch open reel tape and was digitized by an archivist on December 10, 2020. This interview has been trimmed for length. To hear the entire recording, please contact the City of Edmonton Archives. Our interview today is with uh, Lawrence Olson, former member of City Council. Uh, Mr. Olson, I understand that you were born in Saskatchewan? Uh, that's right, I was born in Saskatoon. And your parents immigrated from one of the Scandinavian countries? Uh, my dad came over from uh, Oslo, Norway, uh, when he was about oh, 12, 14 years old. And uh, my mother came from uh, Detroit, uh, Duluth, pardon me, Duluth, uh, I guess it was, and her folks were both in Sweden. Now, you were uh, educated in Saskatchewan. I uh, started uh, school, I took my uh, public schooling in a homestead school up uh, northwest of Prince Albert, uh, I think it was called Tanglewood School District that... uh, uh, I attended, and I moved into Prince Albert in 1940, and attended uh, the Prince Albert Collegiate Institute, uh, completing my grade 12, I guess, in 1944. And then uh, I was in the Army for one year, and then uh, that allowed me uh, an in, as far as university is concerned, because the Army paid for, uh, on a month-to-month basis, or a month-for-a-month, uh, month's tuition for every month you were in the service. So that gave me my first year at university, and uh, I eventually completed university in 1949 with a uh, uh, civil engineering degree. Is it at that time that you decided to move to Edmonton? Uh, one year after that. I worked for one year in uh, Saskatchewan, uh, in the Coppell Valley, and in uh, Big River in northern Saskatchewan, and we moved up to Edmonton in 1950. Why did you choose Edmonton? Uh, the firm I was uh, working with... Uh, had uh, uh, looked at the Alberta and particularly the Edmonton scene and realized that there was a, a great potential here in the surveying, land surveying field, and that's what I've been in ever since. And uh, they opened an office here in Edmonton, and I was one of the initial people that came up to staff that office. And which firm was that? The uh, firm in Saskatoon was called uh, Phillips, Stewart & Phillips. It's an old survey firm that goes back to the... Uh, early 1900s, and uh, when they started in uh, Edmonton, uh, they came up with a new name, and it was called Phillips Hamilton and Associates, and uh, we came up here in uh, 1950, as I say, and bought out a a firm uh, called Driscoll, Knight, Cotley, and Inkster, and they, in turn, had roots in Edmonton going back to the turn of the century. And uh, many people are wondering now, how, how come you're called Buck? Well, that's a, that's a long story. I'll I'd, I'd give you a very a, a short version, I guess. Apparently at uh, an, eight, an early age, I think I was three or four in Saskatoon, uh, I uh, uh, used to visit, apparently, some neighbors. And uh, some the, the, the father in this family, I guess, referred to me as a, as a buckshot. Uh, and I apparently uh, had difficulty... Uh, pronouncing the word Lawrence, and I adopted the word Buck myself. That's that's the story I hear, anyway. I see. Uh, you, you presently uh, own and operate a, a survey business called Hamilton & Olson, even though I understand there is no longer uh, Mr. Hamilton actively involved in the business. 
Is that the case? Uh, that's right. Uh, I had indicated that the firm was called Phillips Hamilton at one time, and uh, uh, Phillips uh, uh, eventually moved back to Saskatoon, and uh, I formed a partnership and subsequently a company with uh, Jeff Hamilton. And uh, Jeff uh, and I were together until 1962, at which time he joined the city as a commissioner. Uh, and I bought out his interest, but I have retained the name of the firm uh, as Hamilton and Olson and uh, have operated as a sole proprietorship since 1962. If we could talk for a moment, Mr. Olson, about your first term in office. Uh, you were first elected in the, uh, in the election of 1971. Is that not the case? That is correct. Uh, that's the first year that uh, the city adopted the ward system. Mm -hmm. uh, had you run? For any public office prior to this time? No, I had not. It was my uh, it was my first attempt, and uh, I had been uh, certainly interested in, in what was happening to our city, and uh, I had uh, viewed a few council meetings, and certainly, I guess, had shown enough of an interest that uh, a few people, and I guess one in particular, uh, Mr. George Crudum, who I had a great deal of respect for, uh, convinced me that I should, in fact, give it a try, and uh, it was my first attempt. Uh, it's not too often that an alderman is elected in Edmonton on a first try. Uh, most, I, I think most, usually you have to run a couple of times. Were, were you at all surprised when you won? Or? Uh, I, I don't think I was too surprised. Uh, I felt that I had some good people working with me, and I think we had a pretty well-organized uh, uh, campaign, and uh, we worked hard, and uh, I guess we... We worked to win, and we won. And uh, it was, as a matter of fact, it was a very close uh, struggle between myself and another, as it turns out, another uh, individual, another in individual who happened to be an engineer and a surveyor as well. I think we were only 100 votes apart when the final tally was in. Indeed, indeed. Uh, if we could discuss some of the issues of, of that first election, uh, perhaps the hottest issue at the time was the Omniplex issue. Uh, as you might recall, um, you were quoted in the paper of today as saying that you, you were against it as it was presented on the ballot because there was a plebiscite on the uh, omniplex issue. Um, just looking back, how do you how did you feel then about the omniplex? Were, were, were you indeed for it or were you indeed against it? Um, I indicated the time that I, I could not support it and uh, I. I I feel it was the right decision then, and it's the right decision now. That uh, I think they were trying to do too many things with one building in in a difficult location. Uh, uh, the location, for all practical purposes, was right downtown, and uh, as I recall, the facility it was going to house uh, football and hockey and uh, just about everything you could name. And uh, in my view, uh, we were having enough difficulty as it was trying to get people coming downtown to work or to uh, shop or whatever and uh, trying to place that kind of a facility in so central location would have been a mistake in my view and uh, I, I, I'm sure we could not have accommodated the kind of crowds for instance that we're getting in uh, in uh, Commonwealth Stadium now with our 42,000 seats and we're going to have 50,000 seats in in three years apparently for the student games. Uh, I think it was a uh, uh, it was an attempt to try to do all things for all people, and uh, I think we are better 
uh, off in the long run, having gone the way we have, that is with our convention center separate, with our coliseum separate, and with our uh, major sports stadium this in, in a separate location. I mentioned, Mr. Olson, that there was a, a plebiscite on this issue. Um, that's, that's related to another issue of the day, and that is that at that time, renters were not allowed to vote on certain issues. Uh, I believe it was money bylaws, or uh, well, that, anything that, involving money. Um, how, how do you feel about that? Well, uh, the... I guess the, the theory is that uh, if you're a renter, well, you don't, uh, and obviously you don't own land, uh, that you don't have a, uh, any real roots in the city. And uh, I, that I, I, I can't uh, agree with. There are some issues, uh, obviously, where, where uh, perhaps the landowner must be given a, maybe a, a greater weight of vote, but uh, certainly the renter, in my view, pays his fair share. He's, he's paying rent to the apartment owner, and the apartment owner is paying a land rent. So uh, he, I guess you could say he's a landowner indirectly, and uh, I would certainly, I'm sure I supported them and would now the fact that they should have a right and they should have an opportunity to vote on, on money bylaws and major issues facing the city. Speaking of people who uh, don't own their own home, um, public housing started to get going in the city in a big way at that time. Uh, there was proposals for public housing in, in different parts of the city. Uh, could you give us your views on public housing? Well, that might take all afternoon, but uh, yeah, I, I have never been a strong supporter of public housing. Uh, uh, in my view, municipalities have been forced into public housing programs uh, because of federal government legislation. The uh, le legislation at the federal government level makes it attractive to, to, uh, to build uh, public housing units uh, and in fact, it's the only way that they, the federal government makes money available to help the, the, uh, the, um, the people who uh, require some form of assistance in order to have a roof over their head. Uh, I, I, I think it's a mistake. I have always maintained that I would prefer to get the, that money into the hands of the, individual, the individuals themselves. Let them pick the kind of housing that they desire in the, in the location that they desire rather than having to, to uh, be dependent upon uh, the, the city or the provincial or the, or the federal government, uh, first of all, and, and uh, secondly, to, to go to a site that they have picked as an appropriate public housing site. Uh, my ward, uh, Ward 4 that I represented, had a, an overabundance of public housing sites, particularly in northeast Edmonton. And uh, it, it, it happened that that was an area that was being developed, I guess, at the time, and perhaps it lended itself to public housing. And... Uh, I, I think there's a, you create all kinds of problems when you have a, uh, a, an over-concentration of public housing in an area, and you can say all you want about the, you know, the, there shouldn't be any stigma attached to it, but there is. Uh, um, our our uh, observation around the city is that you give any neighborhood a, a choice of whether they want to have a public housing development take place in the area where they don't, they'll say, no, we'd like to have it, but put it over in somebody else's spot. Uh, I guess it comes back to my basic concern, though, is that if, if, uh, if money needs to be made available to help a sector of our society into housing, then I'd say put the, let, them, let the funds be made available to them directly so that they can pick and choose rather than have to go through a, uh, 
uh, a public housing project where where somebody else decides where you're going to live and how you're going to live and the kind of unit you're going to live in. I, I just I think it's a program that was was uh, started at the federal level and was was uh, pushed off on the municipalities and really they've had no choice but to go along with them. You mentioned that there's uh, problems arise once public housing starts in a locale. Uh, what what sort of problems did you have in mind? Uh, the the from my observation. Uh, there, initially at least, it appeared that the, the units were being developed with a, a, a substandard allowance for, for uh, parking of uh, vehicles. The assumption was that anybody that would live in, those, in, in a public housing unit would not, either not have a vehicle or maybe only have one vehicle. Uh, uh, history has shown that, in fact, what is happening is that you've got probably two vehicles at least for each unit, that is, either they've got a vehicle and a and a recreational vehicle, or a vehicle and a and a, and a, a mobile trailer of some kind, uh, and as a result of it, you've got parking all over the adjoin, adjacent neighborhood uh, because of the lack of park adequate parking facilities provided in the facility itself. Uh, I think some of the densities that were allowed were too great. That is, it's it's fine to put one perhaps one small unit in, but when you've got unit after unit after unit, or development after development after development, adjacent to one another, the densities that were allowed in some of the areas in Northeast Edmond were just too great for the areas, and uh, you well, you just can't put, uh, in my view, you just can't crowd families in that tight a neighborhood without getting, uh, without creating all kinds of problems. Uh, another one of the issues of that election was the uh, industrial airport. A lot of people wanted to do away with it. Uh, your stance at the time, if I might refresh your memory, was to wait and see what the uh, Ministry of Transport had to say. Now, I was not able to find out what the Ministry of Transport finally said. Uh, was that just a convenient uh, response to a rather difficult uh, issue at the time? or? Uh, no, uh, I, have all, I have in fact always supported the retention of the municipal airport. I think it's a, it's a, a very vital part of our city economy. Uh, at the time, uh, they had commissioned a, a very lengthy and costly study of uh, the potential of the municipal airport, and I think airport facilities in general in Edmonton. And uh, I was prepared to, to have a look at what they were uh, were recommending. If somebody can convince, could have convinced me otherwise that uh, we should take a different uh, course, uh, you know, then you, I think you've got to have an open mind. But uh, uh, having had having uh, had agreed to spend the kind of money they were spending and taking the time to carry out the study, I think I think any any member of council or any citizen probably had an obligation to wait to see what the report said before you uh, perhaps jumped in. The report uh, made a recommendation that the uh, the municipal airport be continued as an industrial field, a municipal industrial field, and that the uh, basically the uh, the heavy aircraft uh, flights be uh, restricted or eliminated, and that the training flights be removed to a, a satellite airport outside of town. That made, in my view, good sense, and uh, I I was I guess our count the first council I was on supported that recommendation. I forget whether it was called 6B or 2B or whatever it was, but uh, the recommendation made good sense. Uh, we've subsequently uh, seen the development of the Villeneuve satellite 
and the uh, training planes are gradually moving out of the, moving out to that location and uh, I think the airport is adopting a, a, the proper role as an industrial field we've uh, agreed and, and have in fact built the parking structure that uh, now accompanies our new terminal building and uh, I think we've got a, a real asset an ace in the hole with that uh, airport it offers a degree of uh, I suppose there is a degree of of uh, of uh, hazard involved, uh, you know, with the flights coming in and out, it's true that you we may have an accident or two. But uh, yeah, if you were to take that approach, you'd close down a lot of roads as well. Speaking of roads, uh, you pushed very strongly for the Capital Animal Freeway. Is that not the case? When I uh, was elected to uh, council, and uh, early early in, uh, I think I guess it was late the fall of '71. I had recognized that the Capilano freeway had been constructed uh, all the way from the south side across the river and up to 111th or 12th Avenue. And it stopped right then, right at that location. And what was happening is that the traffic was pouring across the river and then uh, seeping through all of the residential communities on the north side of the river. And when I uh, looked at the, uh, at the uh, history of the project, uh, it became obvious that council had uh, had borrowed the money necessary to continue that project at least up to 118th Avenue. There were certain funds available, and uh, it merely required a decision by council to, to direct the administration to get going on that leg of it uh, because the funds had already been borrowed. This doesn't usually happen. You usually don't borrow them till you need them, but in that instance, the funds had already been borrowed, and the money was sitting there collecting interest. Uh, so the, I think the first... Uh, either the first or the second motion I made in council was to the effect that the administration be directed to bring in a, a program that would provide for completing that facility at least up to 118th and 20th Avenue. And that would, in fact, uh, uh, relieve a lot of the uh, the difficulties that the neighborhoods were facing with this with this leaking traffic running all through the, the, uh, the Highlands and uh, Highlands area particularly. Another issue of that election, uh, which continues today, is the annexation issue. Uh, you you spoke at the time as being against piecemeal annexation. Well, of course, now the uh, proposal before the city council is to annex, I believe it's something like 300 square miles. Uh, everything from Sherwood Park to St. Albert Way and so on. Uh, how, how do you feel about annexation now? I guess I feel the same way I did then, that uh, uh, when, when I talk about piecemeal annexation, what happens in that process is that that uh, individu individual developers uh, or landowners come to the city uh, and make an application for annexation. Uh, the, the, the application goes through the local authorities board route and, uh, and uh, they eventually make a, a decision that may or may not uh, take into account the wishes of the major city, Edmonton. So the, the, the city is never in a position to know where their next development is going to be, that is, where the next bulge is going to take place. They're, they're trying to plan uh, services, including transportation and all the other utilities, uh, for a city, and they don't know from year to year where the next, uh, uh, I say, bulge or development is going to take place. It just makes for a very inefficient, uh, uneconomic, and poor planning to operate on that basis. It, it, I have always maintained and uh, do so now that 
there is a need for a major boundary adjustment in the Edmonton area, similar to what Calgary uh, experienced in 1955 when uh, when the McNally Commission made the recommendations both for Edmonton and Calgary to the effect that the area should be greatly enlarged. Uh, the Calgary application was approved uh, almost uh, exactly as recommended by McNally. The Edmonton recome recommendation was almost entirely ignored by the provincial government at the time. Uh, we're now in another position where the city has made a a, uh, um, a major boundary uh, adjustment application, call it annexation, if you will, uh, and we are, I believe, with right now within a matter of days of getting the report from the uh, local authorities board recommending with their recommendation and uh, hopefully their recommendation uh, and the provincial government uh, subsequent decision will be to the effect that Edmonton's boundaries are significantly enlarged so that the Edmonton region uh, is looked at in a more realistic way. Uh, the uh, the present process of allowing development right up to the border of the city uh, is not satisfactory. It's not good for the uh, the city. It's not good for the surrounding areas. It's a it's a, a nightmare for industry trying to come in and locate on our boundaries. Uh, there is a need for a major uh, boundary adjustment, and I hope it's going to happen this time. At the end of uh, your first term of office, uh, 1974, you you decided to run again for office, uh, and, and once again in Ward Four. Uh, I guess you must have been pretty satisfied with with your own work and with the work of City Council at the end of that first term. Um, when I ran uh, initially, I had in, in mind uh, two terms that I was prepared to give it a try for two terms, and uh, there were a number of issues that had uh, that had arisen during the first term that were still uh, um, outstanding. At, in the fall of 74, and I was prepared to uh, stay around for another three years, to hopefully to see some of them to uh, uh, a logical conclusion. Uh, would one of those issues have been the McKinnon Ravine uh, freeway, that is? Yeah, that, that was one of them, and the other one was the convention center. Indeed. Well, let's talk about the McKinnon Ravine first, uh, the proposed freeway. You were against that freeway, were you not? Yes, uh, when, I, when I first looked, uh, first got onto council, I looked at the two, the two half-completed projects. One was the Capilano, uh, and it, it, the only solution there was to complete that project, uh, uh, take the, the traffic to a logical conclusion, which uh, in its first stage was 118th Avenue and 120th Avenue, and the subsequent stage is to bring it up to the Santa Rosa Road or the Yellowhead Trail or whatever you want to call it now. Uh, the other project that was half completed was McKinnon, and uh, in first looking at it, 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 there seemed to be some logic in completing it as a roadway, but as you examined uh, more closely the, the, uh, the consequences of its completion and uh, the effect that this would have on, uh, on the downtown area and the river valley of the system, uh, river valley's system of the city, uh, it became clear to me that it was not a project that we should spend any further money on, and I've opposed it ever since. Uh, related to that is the issue of rapid transit. Uh, conversely, you were, you were for uh, the development of rapid transit in the city. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about you know, how rapid transit got going as, as an issue in the city and the development of it? 
Well, uh, rapid transit uh, per se uh, had been discussed by city councils as far back as the late 40s, I believe, and early 50s anyway. And uh, we had studies by McDonald and by Backer and by Bechtel and by uh, you name it, uh, uh, all kinds of studies uh, saying yes, that uh, the city should proceed with a rapid transit system, but uh, uh, councils had never made any real firm decision in that regard. They had allotted uh, money, monies for studies, and they allotted a few dollars for purchasing of lands at near stations. But that's as far as the, uh, the they had ever gone on it. And uh, I had looked at that pretty carefully before uh, running for office, and I was convinced it was the right way to go. And uh, when uh, we... Uh, looked at the matter in 72 and 3, I guess it was, uh, we looked at the uh, the possibility of starting a rapid transit line, and we looked at northeast Edmonton in particular, and uh, I was serving on the Utilities and Engineering Committee at the time, and uh, we uh, asked the administration to come forward with alternatives, uh, that is, alternative methods of trying to solve the transportation problem for northeast Edmonton. And as a result, they came back in with uh, a proposal for a, uh, an all-bus system that may have handled the, the area. They came back in with an all-freeway system, and they came back in with what we called a, a combination bus transit system. And it was a bus LRT system. And uh, uh, I think when council had the, the alternatives placed in front of them, they were then prepared to make a decision and pick one of them and do something. And... Uh, it turned out that that council was, was pro-public transit and pro-LRT, uh, rail transit. And uh, that is, uh, I, I like to think that I had a fair bit of input in, uh, in getting that particular line going because it was in the fall of 73 when we were looking at the 74 proposed capital budget. The administration had brought in a, uh, a proposed expenditure for rapid transit of... Uh, a matter of $100,000 or so, again, to buy some more land near stations. And it was during the, uh, the that council meeting that, uh, that uh, I realized that if we were ever going to do anything, we had to get going on it, and uh, I made an amendment, uh, a motion to amend the budget by adding $3 million to be placed in the 74 budget to make a start on that northeast LRT line. I had discussed with the administration beforehand what we could realistically spend in, in order to get it started. Uh, council debated that motion, of course, at length, and it was they agreed in that meeting, though, to add that money into the budget. So that really was the, the kickoff. Uh, until until you were prepared to put something in money in that kind of magnitude into the rapid transit program, you just weren't going to get started. So once, the, once that $3 million was in, that... Um, gave us a commitment and we were going to go ahead with that northeast line and at that time we were not assured of any provincial or federal funding. We, we sort of bit the bullet and said we're going to go ahead with it and uh, we we were prepared to do it on our own. Uh, also uh, during the 74 election the, the issue of wards came back again and again. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, there, there was another plebiscite on wards. Uh, it was a four percent difference in the popular vote, uh, being fifty-four uh, percent in favor, forty-six percent against. Um, 
how do you feel about the ward system? I, uh, I think the record will show that I have always supported a ward system uh, because I felt it approximated the ward system that in effect uh, takes place at the provincial and federal level. They have constituencies, we call them wards, but uh, they're basically the same thing. And the, the, uh, the, my reason for supporting it, uh, a ward system has been that it helps to identify a particular alderman to an area so that uh, when a citizen has a problem or has a concern, he can say that, you know, this, this alderman or those two or those three aldermen represent my ward and, and uh, I, I will contact them. If you just are elected at large, uh, I think it's difficult for the citizen to, to I guess you flip a, flip a coin to see who you're going to call about a problem. So I think it, it, it helps to, uh, to develop a, a, a sense of responsibility and a, a, a tie or connection between the citizen and his elected representative. So I've supported the ward system all along. I initially said that I supported 16 wards uh, when I first ran, and at that time Edmonton had 16 MLAs. And I thought it would be an advantage if uh, the ward boundaries could be coincident with the uh, municipal, uh, pardon me, with the provincial boundaries, so that the citizens could say, "Look at that! My ward is. Uh, if I've got a problem at uh, the municipal bound at the municipal level, I know I can go to Olson. And if it's at the provincial level, the same area is represented by so and so, and I can go to him." And and similarly, the the Emma, the provincial and the city representative, I think, would have a tendency to get their heads together to try to solve problems that affected that area. Uh, I was I never did get enough support on council to uh, to get that one approved. I tried at different times. Uh, so anyway, I've I've supported a, a form of ward system, and I uh, initially initially I wanted one alderman per ward with sixteen uh, wards. At the time, we couldn't do it legally because provincial legislation prohibited it. They have subsequently amended the legislation so it's now possible. And it must have been difficult uh, as a member of city council to, to represent people all the way from, say, Clareview uh, in the north part of your ward to the south, say, in Goldbar. Uh, the problems may not have been the same. Uh, did you find that to be the case? Uh, uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, as far south as Goldbar, Mill Woods is the the bottom end of Mill Woods uh, was the old ward, initial original ward four, right from the north end to the south end. So you had a, a strip of land some ten miles long. The uh, I found that residents in Mill Woods didn't even know where Clareview was. They'd never heard of Clareview, or they'd never heard of Londonderry, or uh, uh, some of the other areas, and vice versa. Uh, so it, yeah, it's a very real problem. Uh, I, I think the a member of council has a difficult time, I suppose, being really conversant with all the problems in a, a ward, regardless of its size. They they have to, uh, I guess, be a, a, attuned to the problems in their particular area, but they also have to be able to represent the city at large. They have to know how to how to, uh, I suppose meld the problems of their area with the problems of the city as a whole, because you can't always take the narrow view of your of a of one area of the city and say I will only do what's best for that for that little quadrant of the city or whatever it may be you have to to take the broad outlook all the time during that campaign uh, two other issues came up that were somewhat related uh, I like to refer to them as sort of ethics and morality uh, on the ethics side a lot of uh, citizens and some members of council 
supported the idea of candidates, if successful, filing statements of their net worth, that is, their business dealings, what they own, etc. Uh, I believe that you were for that, were you not? I don't believe I was. No, you were <laughs> not. No. I don't think so. Uh, I've never felt that it was uh, it was too meaningful. Uh, there are, are too many ways of uh, perhaps not uh, divulging all of the information or, or hiding it in some other forms. And uh, I, I recall a colleague of mine, uh, uh, Alec Fallow, who uh, I saw eye to eye with on a number of occasions. Uh, he made the statement in council that it appears that what somebody was looking for is uh, an alderman to go running down, down the street bare naked and said, here I am, here's all I've got, <laughs> elect me, you know, and I'll be honest. And uh, that that's nonsense. Uh, I think you uh, you have to build up a certain uh, credibility based on uh, your background in the neighborhood and, uh, and, and in the city and the kind of uh, uh, things that you have accomplished from a business or a community point of view. And... Uh, I don't, I don't see any magic in either uh, electing somebody or not electing them because they've got money or they haven't got money. Uh, I, I, you know, I, the, uh, the net worth of an individual financially doesn't, make, doesn't bear any relationship to his net worth as a member of council, in my view. As I was saying earlier, uh, the, the question of morality came up, uh, especially with regards to the use of schools. Uh, now, that was a, a two-sided issue in that a lot of people wanted to see schools used for community activities during the evening and some people wanted to see the schools used once again outside of school hours but to allow alcohol permits. Now that's sort of a provincial issue really uh, in that they control the, the, the use of alcohol. Nevertheless it became a civic issue. Uh, could, could you tell us your opinions on, on, on both, both aspects of that? Well, I, I would say initially that uh, I suppose being maybe a, with some engineering training and uh, business training, I guess I, when you're looking at uh, building a facility, it doesn't matter what it is, or buying a, an asset, whatever it might be, uh, you have to look at the greatest possible return, and the greatest use for that facility. So if you're going to build an office building, you don't build it for... Uh, eight months to the year occupancy or 10 months. You hope to have it occupied 365 days a year because uh, it is depreciating at a certain rate uh, regardless of whether it's sitting idle or whether it's being fully utilized every day. Uh, so I, I, I always supported the theory that the, the facility, if we could get 12 months uh, use out of it a year and 365 days, we should do so. Uh, so the, the joint use of schools, I, I supported the uh, uh, completely, the matter of uh, of uh, alcohol in the schools, uh, I didn't see that as being a major major problem. I'm sure that there are ways in which or uh, areas of the school that could be uh, either the gym area or whatever area of the school and the community buildings as well that uh, are usually in close proximity to the school that could be used uh, in in a controlled and a realistic, uh, meaningful way. Uh, Allowing use of alcohol in them, and I don't think it would would uh, corrupt the neighborhood or the, the school system at all. I didn't see a problem with it. I think that was the booze and bingo uh, <laughs> issues that came up. With. There are some communities in the, some areas in the city. There's one in North Central Edmonton, and uh, the the name escapes me right now, where they do have a a community league building, 
that does have a liquor license and uh, it's almost like a, uh, the community pub concept and I think it's working very well and I, I think there's a, there's a need for more of this kind of facility around the city. We can talk about uh, money for a bit, Mr. Olson. Uh, you supported uh, the idea of the city recovering one-third of all the income tax that went you know, from the citizens when, when they filed annually. Uh, now, were you talking about one-third that went to the provincial government or the one-third that went to the federal government or one-third of the uh, in, entire income tax that's paid by Edmontonians? Um, I'm not uh, sure of the particular uh, issue that arose at that time, but uh, I have long felt that uh, the cities are underfinanced. Uh, the, the method of, of uh, financing municipal government in uh, Alberta, in fact almost in all of Canada, is terribly uh, uh, improper and it's, it, it's, just, it's just insufficient. It's, a, it's, I think, incredible that uh, the system has gone, long, gone on as long as it has under the present financing system where you raise money from a property tax and you try to do all kinds of things with it that the property tax was never intended to, uh, to uh, underwrite. And uh, it seems to me that, uh, that we are into various areas of expenditure uh, that should have a call on the income tax. That is, uh, uh, there. Well, we're paying a portion of the school uh, foundation program, or, or the uh, the extra supplementary program. We're paying uh, certain hospital costs. We're paying uh, welfare costs. We're paying, all, so it goes on and on. And these are all coming out of really the city's only source of revenue, and that's the property tax. It seems to me that at the present time we have uh, an income tax, and to the average citizen. He is paying his income tax to the federal government. Uh, by and large, he is not aware of the fact that the federal government is in turn siphoning a good chunk of it back to the province. Uh, I maintain that it was it would be realistic to have a an agreement between the municipal, provincial, and federal that the uh, the uh, again uh, come income tax time. You would fill out a form and it would be a little place on there where you'd have a certain amount dedicated for federal, a certain amount dedicated for, for provincial, and a certain amount dedicated for municipal. And you'd pay this, well, you'd pay it from your normal payroll deduction, of course, but you'd also fill in a return at the end of the year. Uh, whether the one-third is the correct percentage or not uh, is probably that not that significant, but I, I think the, the, uh, the source of the revenue is the right source to look at for a number of expenditures that the city is up against. And uh, I think it would be relatively painless to the taxpayer. It would be uh, it would be just piggybacking a system that's already in effect, so there shouldn't be a, any great additional cost to it. And the city could then uh, be mas masters of their own house in that they would uh, levy a certain amount of income tax and they would also be responsible for, for spending it. The, the, I guess the system I've always supported is that the the closer the uh, the money is being spent to the to the to the raiser. That is, if if the city raises it and the city spends it, I think there's a better chance that we'll do it in a in a meaningful and and uh, efficient manner. If if we're getting grants that are handed out to us by the federal government and we spend them, 
I think you lose a certain amount of uh, responsibility on the way down. Uh, just so uh, I'll be clear here, Mr. Olson, you're, you were suggesting uh, an additional income tax that would go to the municipalities or, or taking for the municipalities money that's already paid. I'm, I'm saying primarily taking money that's already being paid. What's happening now is that the, the, uh, the province is, is collecting uh, a, a certain amount of income tax, both the personal and uh, corporate. They're collecting it, and they in turn are giving it back to the city as a grant. And uh, the connotation of a grant is that I'm giving you something that you don't really deserve, but I'll, I'll sort of give this to you if you're a good boy and you, uh, you spend it the way I, I attach a few strings to it. Uh, I, I didn't envision it was necessary to levy new taxes. I'm just saying that, that uh, the city should have the, uh, the right to, uh, to their collection rather than have them go to the province or the federal and then coming back to the city again in the form of a grant. You also suggested as a new form of, of revenue for municipalities that they get some of the money back that they spend on gasoline tax, uh, oil tax, etc. Uh, uh, so-called automobile revenues. Is, is this essentially the same sort of plan that you envision? Yes, it is. Uh, I mentioned earlier about my first motion in council. I think the first one, uh, I, I talked about the Capilano Freeway. I think that was the second one. The first one was a motion uh, that council adopted uh, wholeheartedly and it, it uh, called on the provincial government to devise a, a new funding scheme to provide uh, dollars for the municipalities for road uh, construction and uh, maintenance. And uh, I, I felt at that time the, the province had a, uh, a provincial gasoline tax that amounted, that was in the neighborhood of 12 or 15 cents per gallon. And uh, at that time, I said that the cities needed about three, I forget what it was, three or five cents a gallon to help them fund their programs. And uh, that the province should, in fact, rebate to the, uh, from the monies that they collected from the uh, Edmonton, city of Edmonton uh, uh, fuel users, they should turn around and fund that back to the city on the basis of so many cents per gallon. And uh, that would eliminate the grant idea again, but it would, uh, would be a legitimate user tax, so that the, the, in theory, the more you drive and the more roads you use, the more you use the roads, the more you would be paying, to, uh, contributing to their construction and upkeep. Uh, I, I think each of the councils that I served on uh, adopted that same motion and passed it to the provincial government, and uh, the provincial government, I understand at one time, uh, were very close to, to adopting it, but they changed highways ministers and the new one uh, came in with a different theory, so it, it was never enacted upon. In the meantime, they have backed out of the uh, gasoline tax or fuel tax completely, so we've lost that source of potential source of revenue completely unless they, they want to initiate it again. Uh, as a matter of fact, even at this stage, I would be in favor of reimposing it, and if they want to call it a municipal fuel tax, do so, but at least uh, put some realistic dollars into the city and put it in on a in a form where they can count on it being uh, there year after year rather than on a grant basis where you don't know from one year to the next what your your level of assistance is going to be. Uh, speaking of spending money, uh, can we talk for a bit about campaign spending? Uh, uh, during the 74 campaign, a lot of money was spent. We'll get into that a little bit later on. Uh, some people suggested that there be limits to campaign spending. 
Uh, do you feel that municipal candidates should uh, have so much to spend and that's it? I, I have never supported that, that concept, that there be a, a limitation on the amount you spend or, in fact, that you have to declare where every 10 cents comes from. Uh, on, on the matter of limiting the spending, first of all, uh, it would be uh, grossly unfair unless you you had one limit for an incumbent, somebody that's ever, that had been in office for a term or two or three, put a one limit on him, a fairly low limit on him, and a higher limit on someone that was trying to come in from outside. Because as, a, as an outsider, in order to get your name before the public, in order to do what's necessary to run a campaign to get the kind of exposure and publicity you need, you have to spend money. If you've been in there for five terms, or three terms, or whatever, and you can't get reelected by almost just simply say that you're going to run again and run a few ads or carry out the uh, carry through with the process that the city has been providing in the past. If it takes more than that to get get reelected after three terms, you shouldn't be in there at all. So that's the one problem you face is that there there need there would have to be a a scaling, I suppose, depending on the number of terms you'd served in council. Uh, so I I don't really support that. Uh, there are there are different ways of getting elected. You can spend quite a bit of money, and and it, it you can do it effectively, or you can spend a small amount of money and have an awful lot of people working for you. Uh, if you happen to belong to a maybe a particular kind of a union or a club or whatever, and uh, that whole group happened to support you, you could uh, be, get get elected without having uh, very many real dollars involved. But there would be an awful lot of of uh, a time and effort go into it, nevertheless. Yeah. So it's difficult, I think, to, to just simply say, yeah, well, the dollar is the only yardstick we'll use. I don't know about the 74 campaign that you were in, but I think it was in the 77 campaign where you accepted no campaign contribution. Is, is that true? That's right. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I, the first time around, I had a, a financial manager, and uh, and uh, it was tough to coming out of the woodwork to... to uh, even get uh, camp enough funds together to run a campaign, but uh, I, I was new at it, and uh, and uh, I had some good people raising money, and we raised enough and, and enough to do the job. Uh, in the process, uh, I it was interesting. Some of the uh, people who felt they were making a significant some business um, enterprises in the city that. Support supported me to a degree. Felt they were making a tremendous contribution, and they gave me a five dollar, or a ten dollar, or twenty dollar donation. And I just shook my head, you know, and I said, I, "This is unreal." Uh, so the second time around, I, I, and the third time around, I didn't have to spend the kind of money, you know, a great deal of money to get reelected. I put up some a few posters and did some door knocking and a thing. So I financed the second and third campaigns entirely myself. I didn't accept any donation. So. Uh, it, it provides you a, a certain uh, uh, amount of freedom and uh, ease of conscience and all the rest of it. You don't have to look to anybody for anything. Indeed, indeed. Um, during that uh, campaign, there was, uh, of course, the morality campaign as well. Uh, Ivor Dent was running for re-election. Uh, you, you did support him for the mayor's chair, did you not? That was in his uh, campaign against uh, Bill Horlock and Cease Purpose, I That's believe. That's the case, yes. That's right. I, in, in my view, Ivor was the best man for the job at the time. Mm-hmm. And h- how did you feel when uh, Bill Horlock was re-elected? I guess a bit of a bit alarmed and uh, concerned. Uh, I thought that uh, Dent had uh, 
had done a good job, was doing a good job. Uh, I thought he'd been pretty effective as far as his work with the Commonwealth Games was concerned. And uh, he, it, uh, he is a good chairman. He is a good, he, I think he, he uh, he's a good, he was a good mayor. He served the city well and presented a good image. Uh, I thought he was the best man for the job. I, I, I unfortunately, I couldn't support uh, Horlock because of his uh, previous activities, and uh, I made no bones about it. In uh, related activities to that, the, the Morrow Inquiry was, was going full steam uh, during the 74 election campaign. Uh, uh, Mr. Morrow was about to give his report. Uh, however, it wasn't to come till a few days after the election. So as you might recall, Alderman Ed Ledger uh, introduced several motions to have the election delayed Edmonton, until this report was in. Uh, it was soundly defeated in council. Uh, you were one of most everyone who, who voted against his motion. Uh, what was your, your thinking on that at the time? Well, that the whole moral uh, inquiry, in my view, was a, a tremendous uh, and unnecessary burden on the taxpayers. Uh, it, it's incredible looking back uh, to see how this how councils and the city have become involved in various inquiries and uh, uh, investigations, none of which have, have, have turned up anything of significance. And that particular moral inquiry, it, it dragged on and on and uh, and uh, probably cost uh, the city and uh, individuals involved some $10 million in, in, in uh, actual lawyers' fees and time lost and preparing transcripts and the rest of it. And... Uh, I was, you know, I had uh, sat in on a fair number of the actual uh, deliberations over the courthouse, and I was, you know, from what I had observed, there was nothing in there that would indicate there was any that anything was going to come up that was that would really be uh, uh, of, you know, of significance that would give rise to uh, delaying an election. It was, you know, it was just a, I guess, a, something to catch some attention, and that was about all. But uh, there was nothing uh, that I had uh, observed or uh, was aware of that would give rise to delaying an election. There was nothing, no, no real substance in it. Uh, at, at the end of that campaign, and when the new council was elected, it was very soon thereafter that uh, Mayor Horlack passed away. And the, the city had to get a new mayor. Mm -hmm. uh, there were a number of options open. Uh, city council opted to find a mayor amongst themselves. Um, did you allow your name to stand for, uh, for, for the mayor's chair? Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so I take it then you supported the idea that, that the mayor should come from the council that was there. Um, I, I uh, suppose uh, arrived at that decision, I think it was, uh, yeah. Uh, I guess traditionally, or, or perhaps uh, uh, in normal circumstances, it would have been the right decision. Uh, it happens frequently in in, uh, in some other organizations uh, and in a lot of businesses where the uh, where you will elect a board of directors, and the board of directors will then elect their chairman. And uh, the theory is that the person that you elect is going to have the support of the major of the majority of the directors, so he should be he should be able to be effective in, in running the business. 
this happened, the business of the city in this case. Yes. So it should have it should have worked. Uh, now, uh, uh, it I suppose because of the personalities of the individuals involved and uh, some of the political ambitions of some members of council, it didn't work. Uh, but it was, it, as I saw, it was a calculated risk that that uh, was that was before us. Uh, we knew the time uh, delay that would uh, result uh, if we were to go by uh, to have a by-election, the cost that would be involved, and uh, it was in the dead of winter, if I remember correctly, or in in late late November or mid-November, or whatever. It would have been over the Christmas period, and it, it there were a number of reasons that I thought the right thing to do was to pick somebody from in-house and then get behind that individual and support him and, and function properly. Uh, as I say, it was unfortunate that that uh, some other members of council had some other political ambitions in mind, and uh, it was used to, uh, 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 I guess, to to uh, discount uh, Kavanaugh, who we chose. Uh, it to, to make him look ineffective, and in fact, it, he had a difficult time being effective as a result of it. Uh, as a member of council, uh, I, I, I'm sure you must have been frustrated, to say the least, at over 100 votes being tied 6-6, six, six. Uh, especially, uh, I believe, something like 60 of them were on the convention center or, or related to the convention center. Um, being in that position, how did you feel time and time again coming up to a tie vote? Oh, it was very frustrating. Uh, you know, that, that's an understatement, I guess. But uh, it's all, you know, it's unfortunate. It's also costing the citizens a lot of money. Every time you have a, a delay in a project, it's ultimately going to go ahead, as that one was. Uh, every time you have a delay, you have increased costs and, and uh, confusion in the minds of the public, I suppose, as to what's happening. Uh, yeah, terribly frustrating. I. I don't know whether uh, any any other individual could have have uh, operated differently under those circumstances, but there was a real need to to uh, pull at least a majority of that group together. You needed to get seven of them onto a onto a common bandwagon, and I I don't know whether anybody could have done it. Uh, I I don't know how hard uh, Terry really worked at uh, at lobbying. On you know you have to do a lot of behind-the-scenes lobbying, I think, as a mayor, if you want to be effective. Yes, mayor Dent did a lot of that, did he not? That's right, he did, and Horlick was the master. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of many things for which he was the master. <laughs> uh, uh, you mentioned earlier that you entered civic politics with a view to serving two terms uh, and, and then getting out, uh, but you ran a third time. Uh, how is that? Well, I, I indicated at the end of the sec of the uh, first term there were some things that were uh, still not completed, and unfortunately, at the end of the second term, there were a couple of things that were still hanging fire again, and one of them was at the, still the convention center yeah. that I was determined was going to get built, and uh, uh, and here we were. Uh, it first came up in council in the fall of '71 when we first uh, agreed to go ahead with it, and uh, here we were in '77, and we still weren't much closer to it. So I determined I would stay one more term and uh, do my damnedest to see that that facility at least got underway. Uh, the LRT uh, extensions were, were being talked about and proposed, and uh, that was another thing that was pretty near and dear to my heart, and I was anxious to see that we made a, uh, a positive uh, move in that direction. You uh, specifically wanted a uh, convention center that was uh, preferably at the Grierson Hill site, 
and uh, a center that had a, a cultural component. Uh, it looks like you got both of the things you wanted. Huh? Uh, yes and no. Uh, the convention center, yes, in a in a downtown site, yes. I when I proposed that site uh, to council, uh, I forget when it was in '72, I believe. Uh, it was uh, council kind of looked at it uh, not too seriously and referred it to the administration, and they came back a couple or three months later with a a great big thick report indicating all the reasons why it couldn't be done and shouldn't be done. And uh, we, I recall attending a few meetings with the administration and subsequently council agreeing to that location. And uh, in my view, it's a, it's a, 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 a very unique location for a building. And I think once it's constructed, the, the uh, facility will, well, it'll be known all around the world uh, because of its location, but it is utilizing a very difficult piece of land. And, uh, it's a location that's in close proximity to hotels. Uh, the the facility that I envisioned, I guess, was going to have uh, two or three levels of parking underneath it, which subsequently couldn't be carried out. Uh, according to our soils experts, they said, no, we couldn't put any more uh, structures such as parking structures underneath it. Uh, the cultural uh, component was uh, e eliminated primarily because of that uh, the so-called Nick Six on that on that council. It was to be a trade and convention, uh, a cultural trade and convention center, and the cultural component initially was really significant. It was a it was a major part of it. And had council gone ahead at that time with the the project that was envisioned, it it would be operating, of course, now, and it would have a great deal more uh, in the way of a cultural component than it presently has. All we have in it now is the uh, Canada's Aviation Hall of Fame, and there'll be meeting rooms and stuff that would, so on that will be available for cultural uh, uh, use, of course. But it is not the facility that we could have had or should have had, and could have had at considerably less money. It's unfortunate that the the people that were on that council that that uh, that in fact forced us into this uh, uh, sort of a bare bones building, if you want to call it that are the very ones that were, were calling for it to have a cultural component, you know, a larger cultural component. And uh, I think they've, you know, they, they sort of uh, cut off their nose to spite their face maybe in the process. Uh, another one of the issues of the uh, 77 campaign was the, uh, was the use of plebiscites to, to determine the direction in which the city would go. Uh, a lot of people felt that, you know, Certain issues should go to the people for a direct vote, and others said, "Well, why do we have older people, uh, you know, if, if not to make decisions?" Uh, what's your own philosophy on that? Um, I have never been very uh, strong on the matter of plebiscites. Uh, in theory, it's great because everybody has a chance to express their opinion uh, on an issue. Uh, in practice, uh, it's really difficult. To uh, be able to present the uh, the pros and cons, the all of the issues to the public in a way that uh, that uh, they can um, properly see all the advantages and disadvantages, or the options that may be available. And uh, it's kind of difficult when you're on council and you perhaps spend hundreds and hundreds of hours poring over reports and hearing presentations and. Uh, and uh, you, you're satisfied that you've looked at all of the options and you've then brought in the best recommendation. And then to realize that 
the thing could go to a plebiscite and somebody who's never even given the matter, you know, two minutes thought can go in there and press the yes or no button and can't wipe out and uh, all of the uh, the work that's gone into it. Uh, it's uh, it's interesting you mentioned plebiscites because it, it would be so easy. Maybe we'll get to this someday. I think you could do it by a telephone system where you could have almost instant plebiscites on any issue you want. Uh, you know, you could... Uh, Put on a half-hour program, a TV program, if you wanted, or an hour TV program, and say this the this week's city business or whatever, and this week the issue is whether it's building a city hall or whatever else it may be, and you could present uh, have two you know very competent and uh, and informed people present the two sides of an issue, and then simply hang up, and the people could just press a button on their phone, and they could you know they could have a card, I guess, that would entitle them to a vote one vote per card, so you wouldn't have one person voting 14 times. And you could get a, I'm sure they let the, the system is available, you could do it almost right now uh, uh, with the telephone technology that we have. So you could have instant, you know, plebiscites on a lot of issues. And uh, it would not be bad if, if the public would, would take the time to, to uh, get informed. But my, I guess my concern is that the public is too busy uh, uh, you know, looking after their daily problems, making a living, looking after the family, getting the kids to school, paying the bills. Uh, so they look to uh, their elected representative to make decisions, and uh, I, I never shied away from making a decision on council. Indeed. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the point of people making a living, because perhaps the hottest issue next to the convention center at that time was the uh, salary increase for aldermen. Uh, as you likely recall, um, at that time, uh, people on council were getting twelve thousand uh, dollars. It was suggested that they get a raise to nineteen two, which worked out to about sixty percent. Uh, a lot of people seem to put the accent on the sixty percent. Uh, as it turned out, uh, that that increase was cut back, but uh, not after just all hell broke loose. Uh, could, could you tell us what happened? Sure, very easily. Um, as subsequent to that election, we had a uh, seminar in Jasper, as most councils have done, although this one I don't see they haven't suggested it yet, but uh, the, a seminar away from town, or at least in an isolated area where you can spend 9, 10, 12 hours a day on going over and updating yourself with city problems is, is a good thing. Anyway, we went to Jasper, and the question of salaries... Uh, uh, was dumped on our laps, and uh, we kicked the thing around at length. And uh, in a uh, in a meeting one evening, or uh, an informal meeting one evening, we were discussing it, and uh, we went. We were all in a room, and we went around. Started going around the room as to uh, who suggest or who would support a, uh, a salary increase, uh, and to the in the neighborhood of what you've mentioned. And we started going in one direction, and we got to, uh, I, I don't need to mention names, we got to, to one person, and uh, they said, no, they hadn't made up their mind yet uh, which way they went. So then they started going back the other way, and uh, to make a long story short, I guess there were, I think, three of us or four of us that opposed the increase. Uh, by the time we got around to that individual uh, going in the other direction, she changed her mind, as she I said, uh, and she then opposed it because it was clear the way it was going to go. Anyway, the, a strong majority of council voted in, were in favor of a significant increase. They said in view of the load that councillors have to carry, the workload, that they felt that 
kind of a salary increase was appropriate. I suppose in bearing in mind the uh, the salaries that are received by the Edmonton or MLA's provincial representatives and their other perquisites, they thought it was appropriate. I opposed it in, in Jasper and, uh, and I said it was the wrong thing to do. When it came to council and the, the meeting of the vote in council, uh, I it was clear what the, the way the vote was going to go, that it was going to pass, you know, the increase was going to pass first time around. And I guess I just felt a bit hypocritical knowing that it was going to pass and still voting against it. And I'd expressed my view there before. Uh, so I, I voted in favor of it. And uh, so I was tabbed as one of those that, that supported the increase. I had, I, had not been to, I had not been able to convince them in Jasper that the, the increase wasn't, you know, it was too high. It was not, not appropriate. But uh, it's, it, I guess it, it points out something that happens often in council. When you know a vote is going to go one way, it's awful easy to vote the other way because it's the popular thing to do, and that that's the way I, I saw it. Because uh, and the others that voted that way knew the same thing, and they knew it was going to pass. And uh, I think if I had voted against it, I would also have felt obliged to not accept the salary increase. Uh, but you'll note that everybody that even everyone opposed it, even though they opposed it, they still accepted the increases when they were handed out. Indeed. Um, Subsequently, uh, when I, it was clear that some members of council were beginning to change their mind, I suggested to the mayor, and, and I think I had a motion in council saying that we should set up a, a three-man committee, a salary review committee, and have them make the recommendation and you know do nothing with an increase until their result that came in. That motion was lost. Council didn't support that at the time. But they subsequently did just that. They appointed, uh, I believe it was uh, Miller, uh, a lawyer, Tibby Miller, and a five-member group. Or was it Morrow? Uh, it was a judge, I believe. Judge Moyer. That's who yeah. it was. Yeah, Spud Moyer. Uh, they subsequently appointed him and, uh, and a, a select committee. Uh, and they brought in a recommendation that council bought. Uh, so they did what I had suggested they do, but it took a citizen's petition and uh, action by the newspaper and everything else to bring it about. And that's the way it stands today, is it not? That all all salary increases for council members is done that way. That that's right. Uh, it uh, I think it it handles it on a three year period where uh, um, every third year I believe there will be an independent body brought in uh, to review the current salary and rate, make recommendations as to the salaries for the next three years. I believe that's the right. Uh, I believe that committee is made up of a judge, uh, three members of uh, the uh, Edmonton district. Uh, I'm not sure that that it's a, that it's co the membership is is fixed. Uh, and you're right that at the time it consisted of a judge. It consisted of somebody from the Edmonton District Labor Council and somebody from oh, chamber. Yeah, and chamber and so on. Uh, I'm not sure that the makeup of the committee is fixed. Perhaps it is. Maybe we maybe we uh, fix that as well. But it, at any rate, there will be an independent review board that will make a recommendation. Were you surprised by by the tremendous public outcry over that salary increase? Uh, no, not really. Uh, it was you know the way it was played up in the news media. The 65 percent thing was yeah. was a pretty dynamic figure. You know, a pretty uh, scary figure. And no, it wasn't. Uh, I. I no, I wasn't surprised. Uh, perhaps one of the more minor issues of the day, but still an issue, was the uh, so-called children's curfew bylaw that was proposed. 
we said that all children under the age of 16 would be in their homes by 10 o'clock. Uh, if I uh, have done my research correctly, you, you supported that uh, only if it would be approved by plebiscite. Uh, is, is that correct? I, I believe that is correct. I, I know I supported the concept, uh, at least on a trial basis, or give it a try, because uh, according to the information that we had and the research we had uh, carried out in other centers where they had tried it, and there are a few places in Canada, apparently, that, that have a curfew, uh, it seemed that there were some, uh, some beneficial results uh, that were evident in these other areas. So I was prepared to give it a try. I was then, I would still be prepared to give it a try. Um, most of the calls that I had at the time supported uh, the concept of a curfew. And uh, realizing full well, I guess, that there would be some real problems with enforcement. But uh, there are a lot of uh, regulations or bylaws or perhaps laws on the, on the books today that are, are effective uh, just because they're on the books. You don't have to have a policeman out there enforcing them 24 hours a day and so on. But it, the calls I had from parents said, look, if I could tell my son, he's 13 or 14, whatever it is, if I could tell him that he's got to be home from wherever it is at, at, at such and such a time, because I want him to be home, and also it's, it's against the law, and the law says this, they would say, particularly from single single uh, parent, uh, single mother, where the parent is, uh, is, is the mother, uh, they said that they would have welcomed it, that it would, it would help them with, the, uh, with that problem in the, in the home. And uh, I was prepared to give it a try as a result of it. Sure, sure. Uh, once again, the, uh, the issue of, of personal assets of Alderman came up in, in the 77 election campaign uh, with a new twist. And it was suggested that uh, all aldermen should put their businesses into a blind trust. That is, they, they wouldn't know how their own money was, was being spent or invested. Do you feel the same way about that as you do about disclosure of personal assets? Yes, I do. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's a solution uh, uh, to the problem at all. Uh, I suppose if... Uh, if aldermanic salaries were were you know boosted to the uh, the into a position where you would maybe attract uh, really um, uh, competent business people who were prepared to give up a business to go into this kind of thing, it might be more appropriate. But uh, uh, I I just don't think that it's 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 the solution to the problem. The the whole object of the exercise here is to attract. And retain good and competent aldermen. Now, I I don't see that that you know that kind of a regulation is going to bring that about. Uh, I you know the the uh, again the, the blind trusts uh, from what little I know of them I don't think they're that blind uh, necessarily. <laughs> Maybe just harder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> vision slightly impaired. Yeah. Um, you had a a couple of planks in your. Uh, campaign literature. Uh, one of them suggested uh, restricting aircraft flight over certain areas of the city, specifically flight paths to not go over sports arenas and so on. Uh, I presume this was a safety measure that you, that you had in mind? I, uh, 
attend, I have attended a fair number of uh, Eskimo football games where we've got 40-some thousand people sitting in those stands. And uh, regularly, I, you can observe uh, aircraft flying around, uh, circling the stands with some kind of advertising, whatever it happens to be, the advertising of the day. Uh, and uh, another small aircraft crisscrossing the, the, the skies over the uh, stadium. And it, I just, uh, it was distracting, first of all, uh, as far as the fans are concerned. Uh, in some cases, they're low enough so that the noise is a, is a problem. And uh, others, it just, well, it just seems to me to be a hazard, that an unnecessary hazard. Uh, and uh, I, just, I just couldn't see the logic in allowing this to continue. And I uh, asked counsel to, uh, to uh, take the necessary steps to, to place a prohibition on this. It just, it, I just couldn't uh, see the, the, uh, the justification in, in possibly endangering the lives of 45,000 people with some, with some guy wanting to advertise his wares, whatever it might be. Uh, council uh, support, supported the motion, if I recall, but we were advised by the, uh, I believe, the Ministry of Transport that it was, uh, it was there, uh, it was not within the city's uh, uh, purview to, to, in fact, restrict these flights, that it was a Department of, or Ministry of Transport uh, uh, regulation that would have to be changed, and they weren't prepared to make the change. So that was the end of it, but uh, it's something that should be pursued by some other member of council. It's, it just doesn't make sense, in my view, to to continue that kind of an operation. It's, it's foolish. Yeah. I'd also like to talk for a moment about the uh, provincial government's uh, city debt reduction grant. This is where the city uh, was offered $64 million by the provincial government. Uh, the issue was not in accepting the money or not, of course, but uh, how it was to be spent. Um, were you satisfied with the way that that money was uh, money was used? Uh, yes. Um, in in the first instance, I, I approved of the concept because I talked earlier about the underfunding or improper funding of cities, and uh, we we we've got ourselves in into some peculiar situations where we, uh, as Edmontonians, we are uh, we had and probably still have the highest per capita debt of any municipal government in Canada. Uh, at the same time, we're Albertans, citizens of a province that is completely debt-free, in fact, has a six or eight billion dollar heritage trust fund set up. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I, you could get pretty uh, uh, schizophrenic, maybe is the word or whatever, uh, imagining yourself being extremely poor or extremely rich, depending on whether you're an Edmontonian or an Albertan. It's a bad situation, so I think there was every justification for uh, the province coming in and wiping out a significant amount of our, our debt, since it was since it's primarily, well, they wiped out debt that was owed to them anyway. It was money that we had yeah. borrowed from the province through the Municipal Finance Corporation in order to fund some of our, our needed programs. So the program was appropriate, yes. The, the, uh, the use, we, first of all, uh, the way the program came out, I think it was pretty clear that it could only be used for retiring debt uh, owed to the province, um, and particularly the the uh, the higher interest ones. So it, I didn't think we had any choice. It subsequently uh, 
from more questioning, it, it appeared as if the, it could have been used for other purposes, and that is uh, to, to relieve the tax burden, help relieve the tax burden in a particular year. Uh, and as you no doubt know, there was a, I think there was a petition going on that one to try to, to, uh, to uh, instead of putting it on to, to capital debt retirement, to use it for tax reduction. And it was brought. A, it was suggested that we do this at a time of year when it would have been. It would have meant trying to pay back money to uh, citizens that had already paid taxes for that year, and figuring out some kind of an interest bonus for those that had paid early in the year, and so on. It was entirely inappropriate. And uh, uh, I think our legal department and finance department finally came back to us and said, "Look, it, it may be a permissible according to provincial government uh, uh, their particular program." but it's against the law legally, and we, we just can't do it. So uh, the method that we followed was the right one. Uh, as part of my research, uh, Mr. Olson, I, I checked out your attendance record at City Council, and it was very, very good. Uh, uh, I think out of uh, your last term, out of three years, you only missed twice. Uh, I, I guess that says something about how serious you took uh, the business of council. Uh, at least you were always there, uh, even though some may or may not agree with your stance. Uh, do, do, do you think that is a problem that that some people get elected and and, and simply don't show up as often as they should? Or, or I'll make no bones about the fact that I I, I, I take the the position uh, very seriously. Uh, it's a you're in. You're involved with the uh, expenditure of public money at a very high rate. We were spending a million dollars. Well, uh, I guess towards the end, close to two million dollars a day of public money that council was responsible for, and uh, uh, there are decisions coming before council at every meeting that uh, I felt I had an obligation to provide some input on. And uh, you're you're being paid to, uh, in my view, uh, read the agendas and be prepared. Uh, uh, for the meeting and to go to that meeting and vote. Uh, so I, uh, yeah, I made a real attempt at attending meetings. I, I thought I'd only missed uh, one. Yeah, that would be about right. One or two meetings in each of the of the three terms, uh, and uh, I felt an obligation to be there. The other thing that, uh, as a matter of fact, it and re perhaps difficult to research this, but it's it's possible also. To attend, to appear as if you were attending meetings, you can go there and get your attendance in at the first of the meeting and uh, disappear for the rest of the meeting. And uh, I recall one colleague that would come in at 5:30 at, uh, at night, uh, half an hour. This material is a digitized audio recording from the holdings of the City of Edmonton Archives. For more information regarding the recording, please contact us by email at cms.archives@edmonton.ca by phone at 780-496-8711 or on our online catalog at cityarchives.edmonton.ca.